2: Welcome to the table. We discuss issues of God and culture. My guest today is Dr. Klein Snodgrass. He's actually a very good friend. We worked together for several years on a historical Jesus project, and uh, and uh, Klein was uh, the Paul Brendel Chair. Uh, a professor of New Testament studies at North Park for years, recently, very recently retired. Don't want to confess how how uh, significant that is, but uh, we'll just leave it at that. And we're glad you're with us, Klein.
3: I'm elated to be with you. Yeah. Good to see you.
2: Um, so, our topic today is a book that uh, Dr. Snodgrass has written called Who God Says You Are A Christian Understanding of Identity. And uh, before we get into the book, Talk a little bit about your own background, your your preparation for being a New Testament professor, and kind of the areas that you concentrated on when you were working in New Testament.
3: I uh, grew up in Tennessee, uh, come out of a Southern Baptist heritage, and uh, went to a Bible college and was confronted with faith in a way I had never been before. Ended up in seminary, and they said you should go do doctoral studies. Uh, which uh, I told my friends if I'd known God was going to make me go to school so long, I'd have said no. (laughs) But I went to St. Andrews in Scotland, and my interest in identity actually uh, started within a few weeks of starting my studies there, even though I didn't know it in depth. I uh, was actually working on the use of Old Testament quotations in the New, uh, particularly as they relate to Christ. But early on, I came across a statement, which I used early in the book. Uh, This person said, people were always coming to Jesus and asking, what must I do? And Jesus, in effect, answered, tell me who you are and then you will know what you must do. Mm -hmm. And I can document about two or three months later uh, preaching on identity in a Scottish Baptist church. Mm -hmm. And Uh, over the years, you know, uh, it would come up as a topic, but it was really only when I was doing a commentary on Ephesians that the subject started taking me over. Hmm. And um, I concluded, as some others have, that Ephesians is largely a document about identity formation. Mm -hmm. And so that's uh, kind of the background and why I got into this, and then shortly after doing that commentary on Ephesians, I started using language hermeneutics of identity, um, because I, I think that uh, Scripture is trying to tell us who we are, and if we are uh, trying to interpret the text, we should have a lens uh, that allows us to see what it's really concerned about, and that's to tell us who we are. Mm-hmm. And the reason for the title of the book, Who God Says You Are.
2: Okay. So, uh, uh, and you in your in your New Testament career focused, uh, you did a lot of work on Jesus and the parables in particular, and did work on Paul as well. Were those kind of your two concentrations, or?
3: Yes. North Park, especially when I started, was a small school, and I was a generalist. Had to be. Um, but I taught parables. uh usually about every other year. And, of course, I taught an intro to the Gospels course, so those concerns were always front and center for me. And uh, uh, largely, Paul took the rest of the focus, did a few things outside those parameters, but mostly it was Jesus and Paul.
2: Okay. So let's, let's turn our attention now to the contents of the book and think through... Uh, the issues of identity. I know early on in the book you talk about how important identity is. So, um, so talk a little bit about about why identity, in your view, is so important.
3: Identity is this complex undergirding, this well from which we live. Uh, it is that way that we understand ourselves, we have this sense of who we are, even if we're not conscious of it. And we live out of that. You know, here's uh, who I am, and so therefore I do these kinds of things, and I relate to these kinds of people, these kinds of people. And it really uh, guides uh, the the total aspect of our lives. And and if it's that important, if it's guiding all of our lives, why shouldn't we be focusing attention on it much more than we have?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So most people go through life. I mean, I, I I remember being in college and, you know, being given the standard. I went to SMU my freshman year. And being given the standard college line of, you know, you're in college now to learn and discover who you are. You know, that was kind of the way um these general classes uh, that we had. We, We had certain general classes that were part of the curriculum there Uh, that were designed really to help us think through our identity in a mostly non-Christian context actually Uh, and I think if you ask people who they are the average person on the street they'll they'll talk about the role or the vocation that they have or maybe perhaps their religious background if that's important to them but most people I think focus on this for a very short time if they focus on it at all and otherwise almost fly by by the seat of their pants in terms of their identity. Would you say that's a fair characterization of the way many
3: people approach life? I I certainly would. And I would add, if you look at our society, and particularly the media, everybody's trying to tell us who we are. Uh Uh, And uh, especially as Christians, we need to be very discerning and, in fact, resistant uh, to say, no, I've got a higher calling than that. Uh-huh. And most people tell us what we are so that we'll buy their product or do what they want us to.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about some of these sub-false identities to start off with. What are some of the things people tell us uh, who we are that that really uh, don't influence us or m- probably shouldn't influence us as much as they might?
3: Okay, uh, I think there are all kinds of things. Mostly, one of the biggest messages is you are what you possess.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, if you can buy it and put it on display, then you're important. Uh, you are important because you're attached to X group, and for many people, especially males, it's your sports team. Mm-hmm which is extremely fleeting Uh, when when your team loses and the season's over.
2: Yeah, I know (laughs) you live in Chicago, and I know that's true of the Chicago Bulls these days. That wasn't true at one time.
3: (laughs) Oh, it's it's pitiful at the moment. (laughs) I I have to tell you, my uh, nine-year-old grandson is trying to read my book, Uh and he is a sports fanatic.
1: Uh Uh-huh.
3: And he got to the part in the book where I said, You are not your sports team. And he told his mother, I found that offensive. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so it's a controversial book. Is that what you're telling me?
3: <laughs> in some ways, uh, yeah. some people will find it controversial. And in other ways, uh, I hope it's more enlightening and will cause people to stop and deal substantively with the question. Who am I Okay, and how do I show it?
2: Now, another, another identity element that we often talk about today that is probably more impactful in some ways and, and can be significant is what we often attribute to things like what we call identity politics and that kind of thing, where you get identified with a certain group and that group and the dynamics of that group are supposed to determine who you are.
3: Yeah, and I uh, have a short paragraph in the book where I say that's not what I'm dealing with. Okay. Uh, and also, the, the uh, as you may be aware, there's a, uh, forgive me, a inane, I was trying to find a usable, safe word, uh-huh. an inane group that focuses on identity, and it's a supposedly Christian white supremacist group. Uh-huh. What kind of... Abusive language, to say nothing of theology, uh, is that. But yeah, there's the identity politics, so that whether it's particular race or a particular uh, political party, a uh, gender movement or, or whatever, and uh, that's not my concern at all, mm-hmm. other than the call of Scripture is to something entirely different.
2: Okay, and obviously another category of identity that's important to people might be their nationality. In other words, the the nation that they're a part of, the way they view their citizenship.
3: Right, and I uh, mention that uh, in the book and try to come down on it uh, It's pretty hard. At one level, yes, you are uh, – It's part of your history. You are born into a society as part of a nation, part of a community, and so forth. But the fundamental question has to be, what do you give ultimate defining force in your life? And for any Christian, especially one who knows enough to say Jesus is Lord, Mm -hmm. which is what makes you a Christian, Mm -hmm. uh, there ought to be no question. Here's what gets ultimate defining force. Not my nationality or the state I'm from or my uh, uh, ethnicity, or anything like that. And so uh, we just take it for granted that our ethnicity stamps us first.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: And our nationhood stamps us very early. And I want to say, okay, yeah, those things are fine. And maybe there are things that have to be resisted and you say what has ultimate defining force and you think obviously about something like Nazi Germany uh, and a number of Christians in the confessing movement stood up to say that nation to which we belong does not determine who we are, our Lord does.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And Christians ought to be doing that every day.
2: Mm-hmm. You think of sure. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in that in that period in particular.
3: Well, yeah, hmm. it cost him his life. Yeah, uh, But yeah, and, and uh, nation is important, and don't get me wrong, ethnicity is terribly important, mm-hmm. but it's not ultimately determinative. Mm-hmm. And so I want to ask people I'll do it in the book: Are you more Christian, or for me a white Southerner? Uh-huh. I actually live in Chicago.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, You're in you a, you've been in exile for a long time of your life, haven't you? <laughs> been
3: in exile for a long time. Are you more Christian or Texan?
2: Uh-huh. That's right. If,
3: I know Texas
2: is a country by itself. Oh yeah, it's a status all unto itself. There's no doubt about that. We ask other Americans to show us their passport when they come here. <laughs> so.
3: <laughs> so, yeah, but you understand what I'm trying to get
2: at. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so let's let's begin to talk about uh, Christian identity and. Um, and, and really the tensions that that does introduce because of the impact of these other identities it isn't like these other identities don't exist and that they don't impact us and that they don't even shape us to some degree. I mean, people can't uh, – they can't remove, in many cases, the impact of their ethnicity.
3: Uh, and they shouldn't. That's right. Uh, they may have to uh, reject parts of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think of uh, people who were children of Nazi killers. They bear that name. Mm-hmm. and But they have to create a new story mm-hmm. with their own lives and reject a good deal of their past. But, you know, this is not about saying, okay, let's just play like we are not the ethnic group we are. Right. Uh, the question is, how do you become who you are? One of the important things uh, in doing research over this, uh, for this book over the years, I ended up reading things that New Testament scholars like us shouldn't be reading. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I read a book on uh, neuroscience and religious experience, mm-hmm. and uh, an unusual book in a lot of ways. It's trying to talk about brain chemistry and that kind of thing, but uh, man makes the point that the purpose of every religion is to create an executive self. And what he means by is that here is this self that takes control and says to all these other selves, these other tensions we might want to talk about in our lives, okay, here's how we're going to order things. Mm -hmm. And no, you don't get a right to speak. And yes, you do. And no, we're not going your way. We're going this way. And I think he's right that the purpose of every religion is to create a strong executive self that makes good decisions in light of what God expects people to be. Mm -hmm. And it's really, uh, really fun when you start thinking about that. And uh, you'll know the work of Ben Meyer from a number of years ago. And he's got a book in which he talks about the summoning self, that self that is out in front of us calling us to be what we're supposed to be. Hmm. We're not there yet, but it's calling us. And you go, yes, that's exactly what the New Testament is trying to do, is to function as a summoning self and say, here, come on, this is what you're supposed to be. So I find those things just uh, powerful images. To work with when talking about identity and what Scripture is doing.
2: Okay, so let's talk about the summoning self a little bit, and uh, I'm I'm tempted to posit a starting place for this, uh, but I'm going to let you do it. What's the starting place for the summoning self?
3: Well, uh, how old is the person we're talking about? (laughs) Because clearly, the summoning self uh, is shaped by all kinds of things around us. Okay, parents are going to be. Uh, first in line, and they're going to be one of the strongest voices. And as you know, good and well, every kid they get a little older, they start looking around, is, is saying, "Is my parent giving me the right summoning?" So
1: mm-hmm.
3: put that way, but that's what they're doing. Uh, schools are summoning cells. So. The church has to be. The church ought to be one of the loudest voices uh, anybody hears in terms of saying. Here's the direction you should go. This way.
2: So these these are influences that that uh, that urge us in either positive or negative directions. Is that what we mean by the summoning self? Yes. Okay.
3: Uh, and in, in fact, when I was, I've been talking about this with some church group, and my wife asked me, says, "What's Jesus have to do with the summoning self?" Mm-hmm. And it would be naive to think, well, Jesus becomes the summoning self. No. Jesus may be the model of the summoning self, but you still have a self in there that needs to make the decision to go where you're supposed to be going. Hmm. And your summoning self is individual; it's very personal, and it won't be the same as someone else's summoning self. So you, you know there uh, there are a number of nuances there. So terms. it's a it's
2: a personal stew in some sense in terms of. Uh, in terms of the the kinds of voices that are pulling a given person depends on their networks and their networks are all different
3: precisely and uh, if we're going to uh, talk about what evangelism is shouldn't it be trying to communicate to people who they're supposed to be-hmm uh, and uh, I know the purpose of scripture is and that's got to be the loudest voice-hmm has is this task of saying here's what you should be? Mm-hmm. And call calls us to that, and uh, I, I just uh, really revel in the, the uh, imagery of this summoning self and the executive self. And there are other kinds of self to talk about, you know. I mentioned in the book the accountable self, the one that holds the rest of us accountable, uh-huh. <laughs> or uh, the there's the basic. Uh, drive self that we ought not listen to quite often. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and so there are a number of ways that we have to think about ourselves, but also to know that in this tension in ourselves, and you just think about Romans 7 for a second, you know, the very thing I want to do, I don't do. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that voice in there needs a good strong summoning self to say, we're not going the way sin wants you to go. Right. Right. This way, you know, and and, you, and the next chapter, of course, is the Holy Spirit and the leading people and fulfillment of God's law. You know? mm-hmm. It's good stuff.
2: So, so I'm I'm getting an image in my head that makes the person sound like they're this conference room in which there are all these voices coming at them, and they're having to make choices about the different voices that are coming at them.
3: Uh, I think every person experiences that, even if they no, will not turn on the light and realize they're in a the conference room. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, I mean, think about the media. Mm-hmm. Think about what movies do. Think mm-hmm. about what songs do. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about what talk shows do. Think about what uh, the community around us does, whether it's school or family or whatever, extended family think of the church uh, and we are there in the middle of the thing listening to all these voices and uh, paying attention to the ones we think we want to pay attention to um, and may never hear the ones we should hmm. um, and, and uh, you know there are all kinds of things that seem attractive at the moment but later uh or, disaster, and all of us know that.
2: yeah. so so there's almost this feeling of uh, a person being in all these relational connections, hearing all these voices, uh, exposed to all these things, if I can say it that way, but you've almost given them a personality as well, the the things that we we see and listen to, that kind of thing. And so, uh, it, what, what I like about this way of thinking about things is how relationally rooted it is, that we've been made in the image of God with the capability of interacting and actually perceiving what's going on around us. We've been given you know, uh, a pretty good radio with pretty good antennae, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and it's sorting out all the stations that are coming. I keep using pictures, but sorting out all the stations that are broadcasting to us.
3: And uh, the the pictures are good. Yeah. Uh, but you know, one of the chapters in the book is you are your relations. hmm And uh, you know, I have nine factors in the book in which I, I talk about the factors that make up your identity, and one of them is your relations and how you uh, respond to what relations are communicating to you. And in fact, uh, people often point out we are who other people say we are, and how we react to it. Hmm. And, you know, for a Christian then to say, okay, I'm being told I'm this, but that message doesn't sound right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may be a negative message, it may be an overly positive message, it may be a message that say you're a person who should do X, Y, and Z, and to be able to step back from that and say, no, no, uh, I need to evaluate what God's calling me to be, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and so yes, and you remind me of an old gospel song. Uh, you know, remember came out of the thirties, I think. You know, of the last century. Turn your radio on. Yeah, and it was the whole thing was, uh, you know, that God's trying to communicate with you,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and so turn the lights down low and and. Uh,
0: This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard.
2: well we're 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 examining here kind of the background of identity and and who people say we are and how they push and pull us in terms of who we are but understanding who we actually are as people and what we're designed to be obviously is a core way of being able to respond to what's around us. Now we want to zero in on the second half and talk about that identity and what it should look like and where it should be rooted. And so um, I'm going to start off, since we started off talking about things like nationality and ethnicity and that kind of thing, I'm going to start off with probably a very famous passage when it comes to identity, maybe not the most famous, but one that certainly marks the group that we should associate with, and that's the idea of being citizens of heaven. Now. That to some people is a strange idea because our feet are quite uh, firmly attached to terra firma. And so um, so how do you how how do you explain a concept to, to like that to someone, particularly if they're a very new Christian?
3: Yeah. I think the most important thing that we can talk about as Christians is attachment to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And the synoptics, that's the language you get. Mm -hmm. That's to Jesus, you follow him, and so forth. Mm -hmm. When you get to Paul, and also in uh, the Johannine material, the idea uh, is much stronger. Uh, It's in terms of being in Christ. And uh, when I was doing the commentary on Ephesians, you know, you don't get out of the first two verses and you have to deal with the idea of being in Christ. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, how in the world can you explain this to people in a way that makes sense? And I landed on the expression, geography is identity. Mm-hmm. And that's true any way you look at it. I haven't lived in East Tennessee since I was 17, really, for any uh, length of time. But I am East Tennessean, period. Mm-hmm. I'm always going to be. uh, Because geography is identity. We meet people, we say, where are you from? Because we have some innate sense, if we know where they're from, we know a little bit about them. Well, when you start looking at Christianity, geography is identity, and your true identity is in Jesus Christ. And the Church needs to focus on that part of the message much stronger than it ever has. my, uh, the book I'm uh, trying to work on right now is the gospel of participation. Hmm. Because I think faith is about participating with Jesus because you have your existence in him. Mm-hmm. And if you take that seriously which Paul certainly did in everything he wrote you all of a sudden you say well wait a minute my true ethnicity is in Jesus Christ my citizenship is there, Mm -hmm. I have a higher calling than the one where I am located. When I was about 20, I heard a man preach on the first two verses of Colossians. Hmm. And I'll never forget it, and I don't remember many sermons, but he just preached on the fact that these Christians were in Christ in Colossae. And he asked What does it mean to Christ that you are in Colossae? And what does it mean to Colossae that you are in Christ? There's a real sense in which Christians have a double geography. We live in a place and have a responsibility to it. But we have a higher geography in Christ. And that determines uh, how we live in relation to the other. I think that's exactly what Paul's trying to get at when he talks about citizenship in heaven.
2: Interesting, because uh, some of the work that I'm doing right now in New Testament relates to what I call a theology of spaces and places. It's a similar okay. idea. And, and the point is, and it's kind of what we've done today in talking about this, that, that who I am in Christ is directly impacted by where God has me and what he has me doing. Right. and who I'm interacting with as a result and the issues that are being thrown at me as a result and you know when we do our when we do our seminary curricula you know we study the, the object the person of God or the person of Christ the person of the spirit who I am as a person the nature of the church that kind of thing but we tend not to talk as much about the various spaces and places where God has us where we have to live out that identity and it seems to me that um, there, uh, There's something missing in the way we talk about this. Another way I like to say it is seminaries are good at taking people from the Bible to life uh, because that's the way we teach our seminary students to think. But most people, when they come to the Bible, come to the Bible and they're going from life back to the Bible. They're thinking yeah. about where God has them and asking, what does the Bible have to say about where God has me at the moment? And, yeah. and in my view, this theology of spaces and places is a way of thinking through that somewhat coherently, you know, so that you walk into, you know, you go out of Genesis 1 and 2, this world that God has given us to steward, and we steward it in places and spaces. And so you talk about uh, your home, your community your work, uh, the pluralism that you live in, the globalization and world religions that you're exposed to, etc. And how you approach on that all that is directly related to how you see yourself.
3: Yeah. One of the most striking texts for me on this is not so much about a place, but how Paul adapts the place. Mm-hmm. It's the text in 1 Corinthians 9 where he talks about his freedom. Mm-hmm. And he says to the Jews... I became as a Jew. Mm-hmm. He was a Jew. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I, th- I think about that's it that's like my saying to the Americans, I became an American.
1: Mm-hmm. You
3: know, here, here he had this freedom to identify with people culturally in any direction. You know, to those who are without the law, I'm without, as without the law. To a Greek, so. he was like a Greek, and he wasn't a Greek. No, no. But he had this adaptability because mm-hmm. of the freedom he found in Christ that gave him attachment to place. Mm-hmm. It's not like he's he doesn't care about it. You know, people often talk about Christianity being pie in the sky. It's only you know so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. That's the farthest thing mm-hmm. from anything that relates to Christianity. So here, here's uh, this man who is so deeply attached to the community he's he's serving, that he identifies with them as closely as he can because of his attachment to Christ.
2: Yeah. I like to say of that Colossians passage, you're so heavenly minded you are earthly good. I mean right, yeah, yeah, you know right. because right. because you live out your you live out your your Christian identity, at least hopefully so, live out your Christian identity and the character that it forms and the way in which God has shaped you by the Spirit that you actually are, uh, you you have a useful stewardship of the creation He created us to live in, and we're properly connected to the life we're supposed to live.
3: Yeah, yeah. and what makes more sense, whether you're dealing in Romans 8 or Colossians or any number of other places where uh, there is this broader Theology of creation that kind of undergirds the rest of the discussion.
2: Yeah, and I I think we underestimate the importance of the early chapters of Genesis for establishing who who a person is, what they're created for, where they fit. Those passages, I think, describe what humanity is supposed to be I mean that doesn't have a Christian religious layer over it that says well until you become this you can't be that no this is what God designed you to be this is who God made you to be the idea of being made in the image of God which gives people dignity Uh, the assignment to uh, subdue the earth which is that responsibility of stewardship you're talking about core ideas about why we're here and what we're supposed to be about
3: Yeah. I have a chapter, You Are Your Actions, and in that I talk about, uh, I think it's in that chapter, I talk about tending the garden, Mm -hmm. the imagery from Genesis 2, Mm -hmm. and what's it mean for humans to tend the garden. Uh, Obviously, it's metaphor. uh, And trying to point out that we're not talking about church work. We're talking about life work. Exactly, yep. Because you're dealing with... uh, the care of God's creation, you're dealing with the care of God's people and living productively in ways that contribute rather than are just a drain.
2: Yep. And of course the extension and one of the realities of the Reformation was is that it was the priesthood of all believers which leaves the picture of we're here to be ministers, uh, in in the places and spaces of the creation where God where God has us. That's not limited by four church walls or anything else. That's true of every every believer, no matter where God has them.
3: Yeah, yeah. And why have we lost that so much?
2: You tell me. <laughs>
3: Sorry to turn into the interviewer. Yeah. (laughs) But, but, you know, uh, in all seriousness, uh, all of our Protestant traditions, and I'm sure the Catholics understand it as well, too, uh, have this focus on the priesthood of the believer. Uh, There's there's a responsibility there. And uh, it it fits with one of the things I think is so striking about the early church. Mm Mm-hmm. Everybody else in the ancient world had temples, priests, and sacrifices, and the early Christians didn't have any. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a temple because they knew they were a temple collectively and individually. They didn't need sacrifices because the ultimate sacrifice had been made, and the only sacrifice they talk about was giving themselves. Their bodies, in fact, Paul says in Romans 12. And they don't need priests because they are priests to each other, or supposed to be. And so you you go back and you keep asking, well, uh, what do we have to do to get the church to do justice to its own gospel?
2: Yeah, I I think that one of the failures of of our current style of engagement is we're spending so much time talking about how the world has it wrong, we've forgotten how the church needs to get it right and yep. within its own community, in the way it displays its own relationships, etc., so that it becomes a reflection of a better reflection of what it is God is intending people to be, so that we not only end up having you know talking a good game, but we actually show what it is that we're talking about.
3: We should be leading the parade, yeah, about who God wants people to be and demonstrating it, showing it, and uh, we're not very good at it. Hmm. Uh, so, so let, me, let me ask you this. Um,
2: uh, name for me, this is a bad question, I'll tell you it's a bad question before I ask it, and that is, name for me a handful of passages that you think are, are significant as a believer thinks about their own identity. Which, which text would you take us to, and what's the point coming out of them? I told you it was a bad question.
3: No, no, no. My <laughs> problem is, do only get a handful? <laughs> yeah. uh, you go to, say, Philippians 3, mm-hmm. and Paul has this litany of stuff he was that he considers it crud mm-hmm. in order that he might. Putting get it nicely. It. And, you know, the whole thing is an identity text. Yeah. yeah. You go to. Uh, so I
2: consider all things nothing for the surpassing knowledge of of, of knowing Christ.
3: Yeah. All the way down to the end of the chapter, right? Uh, you get, one of my favorite texts is 1 Corinthians fifteen eight through ten, hmm. which nobody pays much attention to, because the chapter's about the resurrection. And prior to this, you know, Paul's been listing people who've seen the, resurrect, the resurrected Lord, but he gets to verse eight and he says. Last of all, is to someone who is of an untimely birth. He appeared to me also. I am not worthy to be an apostle. And then he goes on and says, and this is the part that blows me away, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Mm-hmm. And his grace was not useless to me because I worked harder than all of them. Mm-hmm. And then he catches himself, and he says, not I, but the grace of God working in me. Mm -hmm. And so here's this identity text where his life is just totally rearranged. And I think it's the most freeing statement anybody can make if they are doing it legitimately, to say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: Uh, And, you know, so here's this history that uh, is really a negative history, but it doesn't determine who he is.
2: Yeah and in fact, I, I, I often find myself saying when I'm teaching and preaching that Christians never uh, should never forget where they came from yep. and wh- why and, and why they are who they are. Yep. And yep. If, if you do that, then it should lower any sense of insecurity. Be-
3: yes, because the grace gives you the added dignity exactly. Yeah. Then, you know, take Ephesians. I know I said Ephesians was a, for identity formation. It's got five times uh, explicitly where the author says, you used to be this, but now you're this. Mm-hmm. And the one that, again, blows me away is in 5.8. He says, you once were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And if Ephesians... Is as uh, most people think is a circular letter. He's not writing even to a congregation he knows. That's right. Yeah. And but he's he's willing to say. You are light in the Lord, and I'm going. What what? <laughs> you don't even know them. No, you're light in the Lord. If you're in there, the lights are on, mm-hmm. and it comes out in the way you live. Yep. And you know, and you know, uh, another identity text which uh, is is great. The prodigal son. Mm-hmm. And uh, Miroslav uh, Wolf in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, does a lot on identity on this parable. And you look at the boy, and he uh, he doesn't like his relations, he doesn't like his geography, he doesn't like his work, and he says, okay, give me my stuff and I'll go away, and he goes and gets himself in this mess. And the text says he came to himself mm-hmm you know, it's an identity thing. The guy realized all of a sudden he's not who he's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. He says, I go home and I'll be a slave. And his dad yeah,
2: he and says, the even dad, the pigs are doing better than I am, <laughs> which is what? something. for. He says, even the pigs are doing better than I am. And that's something for a Jewish boy to say.
3: <laughs> well, whoa, whoa. Yeah, he goes home and he says, I'm not worthy of being a son. I'll be mm-hmm. a slave. And the dad says, no, you can't be a slave. You are a son. <laughs> that's right. And he does the same thing with the elder brother. And so, you know, text after text after text, you know, it's identity. Mm -hmm. The text is trying to tell you who you're supposed to be and to challenge you to face the question and become who you're supposed to be. So
2: if I'm secure in the Lord. Which is what I'm hearing in these texts. Okay. I have what I have by grace. It's not something that I earn. It's something that God it's a status and a stature that God gives me. It's a dignity that I possess through Christ. That means I have the strength to respond to these different voices that we were talking about earlier, right?
3: Yes. And part of and one of the voices that is now in the picture is the Holy Spirit. Exactly. And so here, you're not alone in this discussion. Mm -hmm. Uh, And of course, the church ought to be there reinforcing the conversation as well. But the scripture and the spirit are working all of a sudden. Yeah, you got a chance and you have the necessity to live out this faith. And one of the things that became quite clear to me a long time ago is if, if you focus on Identity and understand what's going on. If you understand what the gospel of participation is about, the faith works discussion goes out the window Mm -hmm. because you're going to work.
2: Yeah, you trust God and faith works. (laughs)
3: Yeah. Yeah. You're going to work. The question is merely from which identity will you work? Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, it's just. The faith works thing is a tired discussion. It doesn't see the depth of what faith is really about. And you know,
2: and how identity functions. You know, I have there's an illustration I used to use years ago. It goes back to my sister-in-law, who wasn't a believer at the time, but she took all her 100%. Uh, uh polo sh- polo shirts you know and no synthetic threads in them handed them to my she took the the shirts that she had that did have synthetic threads in them handed them to my to my wife her sister and said i only wear you know ralph polo ralph lauren polo t-shirts and you can have these and she was saying i have a certain identity of myself and who i am and how i carry myself and that determines the decisions i make about how i present myself Yes. and 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 my joke was that was the most theological statement I ever heard in the 1990s yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah cuz that's exactly what's being talked about here your identity is so formed and shaped by what it is that, uh, that you are in Christ and by him and by the fact that you represent him. The other picture of identity, of course, is you're an ambassador for Christ um, in participating in the ministry of reconciliation. And so that, that directs how you respond, which means you can deal with pushback. You know, the whole second half of Jesus' ministry was preparing his disciples. You know, if you follow my way, there are going to be some people who aren't happy with the direction you're going. And they're going to give you a hard time.
3: Yeah, yeah. And the the proof is in the way the life is lived out.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: In fact, uh, at one point in the book I've got uh, (laughs) – here you go. The most important factor in your identity is what I call – the internal uh, self-interpreting, self-directing memory. Because hmm. you don't have a, an identity without memory. Mm-hmm. And so think about how important memory is in worship. Mm-hmm. Worship is trying to do for memory.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: But with this internal memory, it's interpreting everything about us. Now this is true whether you're a Christian or not. You know, Here's this self-interpretation that's going on inside. And then it, then it directs your life. Here's your sister in law saying, I wear this kind of shirt, it's not that kind of shirt. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's an external community that's telling us who we are. And the only way you can disprove the external community is by performance, by the way you live. And mm-hmm. the, for me, the classic example. Was uh, Susan Boyle? You remember the, the, mm-hmm. the uh, Scottish
1: singer? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She came
3: on the British version of uh, the music show, and a dumpy little woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was asked, "What do you want to be?" And she says, "I want to be a professional singer." And everybody kind of rolls their eyes. And then she opens her voice, I and mean, she's uh, you know she sings, and blows them all away. Mm-hmm. And so here's, for me, the classic image of uh, you can only disprove what other people are saying by the way you live, which is what Christians should be about all, all the time, uh, because they will. Like, you, they will get the pushback. Mm-hmm. But then what how do you live with the pushback, pushback? And how do you demonstrate what it means to be a person created in the image of God, uh, whose geography is in Jesus Christ? How does it work?
2: Yep. And so you end up, uh, you end up responding out of a place that seeks to represent God well, to reflect the character that He's asking you to have, and to and
3: to live accordingly. Yeah, and it's a good life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and the uh, that's one of the things about the summer on the Mount for me. People often talk about it being too hard, and I go, no, no. Uh, what's hard is a life of sin. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you want to live in a community like that described in the Sermon on the Mount where people tell the truth? and uh, They don't even get angry. Uh, They don't uh, violate other people sexually. They keep their contracts. And they don't even contract a marriage. And they don't uh, seek revenge. Yeah. That's the kind of
2: community I think I'd like to live in. Yeah, it's a community that's rooted in the identity of being a follower of Christ. Klein, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us and help us think through our identity and who we are, and you know, listening to the voices that are inside of us and listening to the voice that is inside of us and uh, in our identity in Christ. Thank you for being a part of this.
3: Delighted to be with you.
2: Yeah, and we thank you for being a part of the table, and we hope you'll join us again soon.